0: So how is he a priest, yet not of the priestly tribe? Well, it's because Jesus operated under a different priesthood, and it's something I call the Melchizedek order. If you go back, you read the book of Hebrews, you'll understand that the Melchizedek order of priesthood was greater than Levi, and Jesus Christ was a priest of the order of Melchizedek. So that whenever a person becomes a born-again Christian, and we're brought into that new nature and that new covenant with God, we also operate under that kind of priesthood.
1: Today we want to welcome all the way from Collierville, Tennessee, Pastor Jason Murphy. Jason, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on the show today. Hey, it's so good to have you. and I'm looking forward to learning a little about you because you've been at Collierville Assembly as the senior pastor, but you were already doing ministry there.
0: Well, I went there roughly 2001 as a youth pastor. I stayed there for two years as a youth pastor. Then I was moved to the executive pastor, stayed there for another right at three years. From there, I left to pastor churches. And so this is my second stint at Collierville First Assembly. I had the privilege of coming back as the lead pastor in 2011. So we're excited to be home.
1: Where where did you go when you left?
0: I went and uh, pastored a church in northeast Louisiana. From there, I went to Oklahoma. I had a church there that I was basically, in the Assemblies of God, called a Revite. Uh, It was a church plant that had never really taken off. So we had the privilege of going there and see if we could pump some new life into the church. Great experience. It was a lot of fun.
1: Can you tell a difference in areas when you travel, like going from Louisiana to Oklahoma Can you tell a difference in some cultural things, uh, maybe the way people respond to the gospel? Uh, Just kind of curious. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think every region
0: of the country has its its own flavor, so to speak. You know, the south here, Memphis and Louisiana, northeast Louisiana, is a very similar as far as people's viewpoint, their mindset, the way they view the church or the way they view the Christian worldview. So that was similar. And Oklahoma was a little bit different. The people were very friendly. We had great ministry there, still have a lot of good friends there. But they tended to be extremely conservative people, love God, love country, but they were reserved in their relationships. So it was kind of interesting to have to break that barrier down. You know, in the deep south, he had the southern hospitality. But when we got out to Oklahoma it was a little bit different. Not to say that people aren't friendly, it just took a little bit longer to break down some of those barriers.
1: It's interesting, you know, how people do relate differently. We're so used to almost like when you meet a stranger is really no stranger. It's like your best friend when you're here in Memphis been here for any time. It doesn't take long to meet folks, get to know people. And I guess in some places they can be just maybe a little more standoffish until you get to know them. Yes, absolutely. What about your family? Tell me about your wife
0: Yes. My wife, her name is Kelly. We are from the same hometown. I say, let me go back and correct something. I said, this is home to us. This feels like home to us. We plan to be here as long as the Lord would allow us. I'm actually from Louisiana. So when I went to be the lead pastor at our first church, it was actually in a town about 40 miles from where I grew up. So that was a lot of fun. And where is that? I'm from Bastrop, Louisiana close to Monroe. Most people know where Monroe-West Monroe is. So Bashrup was a small town outside of Monroe-West Monroe.
1: Now, you know there's a possibility, Jason, that we have listeners right now around the Monroe area. When we first turned to our 50,000 watts on AM640, had a caller from Monroe called us and said, hey, I'm down here on my combine in the fields listening to you on the radio, and he called on his cell phone. Wow, how about that? (laughs) (laughs) So your family could be listening to us right now. (laughs) That's
0: funny. The first church I pastored was actually in Rayville, Louisiana. So if your listeners are down there, you know exactly where that is, right off I-20, in between Monroe and Vicksburg, Mississippi. Pastored a church, and it's kind of a rural area. A lot of cotton farmers, corn farmers, and all of that out there. What a great church. It was a lot of fun. Didn't mean to interrupt you about telling us about Kelly. Yeah, Kelly. We're from the same hometown. Now, have three kids. guess I should say we've been married for 14 years. I'm blessed. She serves with me every step of the way in ministry. She's currently leading worship at our church and doing an incredible job. I'm blessed uh, the stuff that she's able to do in ministry, as wow. well as wife and mother.
1: That is so neat. Well, I'm glad you stopped by today and really share with us about a book in the process of coming out called All Things New. It's a book that you've written. I want to talk to you about it and learn more about this book. I got an advanced copy over email. Now, you say that as a follower of Jesus Christ, we're given a new nature a new mind, a new purpose, and a new name. Because of this relationship, we are now part of the true church, a member of God's kingdom. What is the difference, Jason, about being part of this newness that you're talking about compared to organized religion, which you do talk about in your book, too? Sure. And I'm glad you bring that out, because now that's really the heart of the book, dealing
0: with the fact that when a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they become a new creation. And a matter of fact, that's the chapter title that we're referencing here, a new creation. And when a person has accepted Christ and they are born again, they're given a new nature. They're made new. So, There is a difference between a true church and the organized church, and we have the organized church. An organized church, for the most part, can do good things, but within that organized church can be made up of people that are truly born again and people that are not born again. But those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are part of the true church, and there is a change in that person when they accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. And you even say there's a new mind, a new purpose, and a new name. Yeah, sure. A new mind. And that's interesting. Paul brings this out in Romans chapter 12, and he tells us not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so a born-again Christian is in the process of having his mind renewed because we grow up in a new world. We grow up in a world that is conforming us, it's shaping us to a mold. Whenever we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are not to be formed no longer fitted for that mold. It is to be broken off of us so that we no longer think and act like the world. Because we have been given a new mind, we now see things through a different perspective. We see things through the lens of Scripture, through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Shall I say we have a Christian worldview? And the only way to have a Christian worldview is to get a new mind, and that is to learn to see the world the way Christ would have us to see it, and not as the way the world would have us to see it.
1: If I have all of these new things, why do I seem to default back to the old nature or way of life? life so many times.
0: Well, I kind of deal with this in the book as part of a new nature. Uh, Every person who is born of a man and a woman has a sin nature. We are going to sin. And I tell my church all the time, if you do not believe that, just sign up to keep the nursery. You (laughs) will discover real quickly that human beings have a sin nature. Any of you that have children, been around children, you know, there are two words that you do not have to teach your children. They are these. No and mine. That's rebellion, and that's greed, selfishness, and that's sin. Every one of us have sin in our lives. That's the nature that we have until we accept Christ. And once we accept Christ as our Savior, the Apostle Peter tells us in his writing that we are now partakers of a divine nature. So now we have this God nature inside of us, but the flesh nature doesn't go away. So now you have these two natures warring inside of you. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians that it's the flesh and the spirit and the two war against each other. And whichever one you feed is the one that's going to win.
1: You used a word that we don't talk a lot about today, and that's the word sin, and that we are sinners. Before this newness that comes about in our life in Christ, we think that we're really maybe not that bad and that we can do better. I call it brownie
0: points. I talk about this in my book. The, people have this mindset that, you know, if I do more, quote unquote, good things than I do bad things, then I've earned enough brownie points that
1: somehow God is going to be happy with me and God will allow me into heaven. Or maybe if I didn't pull a trigger and kill somebody sure. or do some kind of heinous crime like that, then surely God's going to give me some kind of favor. Well, the problem with that is we're judging each other by our own man-made standards
0: And we have to remember that God views the world from a whole different vantage point that you and I do. So we can't judge ourselves by our standards. We have to judge ourselves by the standard that is given to us in the word of God. And James deals with this very clearly. He says, if you've transgressed one of the law, you've broken all of them. So if you've ever lied, you've committed murder, according to the word of God. So sin is sin. And we are sinners and we need repentance. And that can only be found in the work and the person of Jesus
1: Christ. Jason, you also talk about the church being called to evangelism, discipleship, and worship. What should that look like in the church today? Well, I think it has to be
0: our motivating factor. First of all, let, let's deal with worship real quickly. As a pastor in different venues and different churches that I've pastored, you encounter these things called worship wars, right? So you have a younger generation and you have an older generation, and they have their particular style of music they want in the songs. For some reason, we have come to the conclusion today in our church that worship is the style of music that we do or the kind of songs that we sing, and in reality, that's not worship. Reality worship is something that we do every single day that brings glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. And our worship services, that's really a celebration time. We come to sing and use music and all of that. But worship is our lifestyle every day. Which is something that should take place way before Sunday mornings. Absolutely. And if you follow the book of Acts, they were worshiping the Lord every day. Their life was worship under the Lord. And that's the biblical concept. So we deal with worship and then evangelism and discipleship. The two go hand in hand. Now, it's interesting that Jesus gave us what we call the Great Commission. And Matthew, of course, uh, anyone familiar with the Gospels know this. Before he sent it into heaven, he told us the church to go and make disciples of all the nations. And he did not say go and make converts. Now, obviously, you have to be a convert before you can be a disciple. But if we stop at evangelism and never fully disciple people we have failed as a New Testament church. My opinion, this is why the church seems to be shrinking away from such terms as sin and sinners, because they don't understand the biblical message. They have become so interested in gaining an audience and putting as many people in the seats as possible, having the latest and greatest technology and quote-unquote worship services, but yet they're not really evangelizing, and they're not really making disciples out of those who answer the call of evangelism.
1: I think really what you're seeing in this book all things new is who we are in Christ, what our identity is in being new, learning how to live in the newness of that life. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Again, as part of the church, we are to evangelize. We clearly present the gospel. And a person who accepts that message and they ask Christ to be the Lord of their life, then they are actually signing up to be a disciple, which means they are disciplined to follow the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you grow in your discipleship. You are constantly becoming new. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. And every day you're given a new mind, a new nature. You're giving new joy, new hope. And so that's part of being new. And it's all in Jesus Christ.
1: Jason, you also talk about a covenant people. I like that term. If God is looking for covenant people, as you describe, how can we be that kind of person? Again, first, you come into a relationship with
0: Christ. And at that point, you are in covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. Describe what that means. If yeah, you would. sure, sure. We say Testament. We see Old Testament and New Testament. But in actuality, it's a covenant. It was a covenant that was given by God to man. In the New Testament or the New Covenant, when a person accepts Christ as their Lord and Savior, They are brought into the covenant of God. Under the Old Testament, it was by race. It was God came to Abraham. Out of Abraham came Isaac and Jacob and eventually the patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel. But in the New Testament, the apostle Paul tells us that all the promises have been fulfilled in the seed of Jesus Christ. And when a person accepts Christ as their Lord and Savior, it's no longer by race, it's by grace that they're brought into the covenant. And so now they have entered into this relationship with God. And as part of that covenant, we are called to be salt and light in the culture in which we live. In the Old Testament, the natural people, Israel, they were the vehicle by which God poured his knowledge and revelation of himself into the earth. In the New Testament, those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior become that covenant people that God is pouring out his knowledge and revelation of himself in the earth. And we are salt and we are light and we are to affect the very culture in which we live
1: this new covenant that you describe provides a new priesthood. I want to talk about what the priesthood Was In comparison to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, we can read the Old Testament and we hear about the priest, but there's also the priesthood that we read about in the New Covenant that you talk about. How does this work out in the believer's life?
0: Yeah, interesting. In the Old Testament, you have the priests who were primarily of the tribe of Levi. And again, it was by genealogy and it was by race. They were the ones who attended to the things of the Lord, connected to the temple or the tabernacle in sacrificial worship. In the New Testament, all of a sudden we're introduced to Jesus Christ. Of course, we know all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The central message is Jesus Christ. But in the New Testament, we are told that Jesus is a priest. However, if you follow his genealogy, he's not of the tribe of Levi. He's of the tribe of Judah. So how is he a priest, yet not of the priestly tribe? Well, it's because Jesus operated under a different priesthood. And it's something not called the Melchizedek order. If you go back, you read the book of Hebrews, you'll understand that the Melchizedek order of priesthood was greater than Levi, and Jesus Christ was a priest out of the order of Melchizedek. So that whenever a person becomes a born-again Christian, and we're brought into that new nature and that new covenant with God, we also operate under that kind of priesthood. Revelation 1.6 says that the Lord has made us a kingdom of priests unto God. And so, because we're born again, we are now a kingdom of priests in the earth, but were not of Levi, were not ministers unto death. If you think about the old covenant, their ministry was primarily sacrificing animals. But in the New Testament, we're the priesthood of life. This is why Jesus Christ could touch those who were, had diseases and were covered in leprosy. And this is why he was not ashamed to associate with them because he wasn't bound by the Levitical priestly order and rules and regulations, but he was of the greater order of life. So you and I today don't have to be afraid of people that are quote unquote sick under diseases and all of that kind of stuff because we are ministers of life. And so we represent Jesus Christ and life in him.
1: Now, doesn't the book of Hebrews refer to this priesthood that you're talking about?
0: Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yes. In the book of Hebrews, beginning at chapter seven and following, you will read about the Melchizedek priesthood. And it came by oath. It's not by genealogy. Jesus Christ was given to it by oath. And I go into some detail about this in the book.
1: I'll tell you what, Jason, a light just turned on because I've heard about this for many years, but it's the first time I really have understood it as clearly as you just shared it. Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing that because that is exciting, really exciting. Now, just because you and I are followers of Jesus Christ, and you and I adhere to the things that we're sharing today, it doesn't mean everyone listening to us right now does. It doesn't mean just because those tuned into to, quote, a Christian radio station or a station that is primarily focused on getting God's Word into the people of God, doesn't mean that everyone tuned in has that relationship that we're talking about. And that's why I want to break it down and make it really, really clear for everybody listening. So when you talk about the life-giving cross of Jesus 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 Christ. When we talk about the cross, Jason, we're talking about a place of death. So what do you mean by the life giving cross? Well, every person who's born of a
0: man and a woman is born dead in their sins and trespasses, deserving of death and separation from a holy God. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, did not contain the sin nature, is the Lamb of God, was the Lamb of God, has always been the plan to be the Lamb of God. And he went to the cross of Calvary and he took my place. And if you're listening on the radio today, he took your place on the cross of Calvary. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was bruised. He was pierced. He was humiliated for my sin and for your sin. And he hung on that cross, wheezing like a dying animal, until he gave up his last breath. And he did it for you and he did it for me. So, therefore, our sin, the punishment for that sin, has been paid for in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the story doesn't end there. He was buried in a tomb. Three days later, he came alive. He's alive even today, and he was raised again for our justification, which means whenever we accept Christ as our Savior, then our sin has been forgiven because the punishment has been paid for by the crucifixion of Jesus. So we have died to our sins now, but we are raised in newness of life with Jesus Christ, and we now have life and life to the fullest. We don't have to look forward to heaven to enjoy life. We can have it right now through the life-giving power of Jesus Christ.
1: And that is the life-giving cross that Jesus offers
0: us. Absolutely. It sounds strange to say that the cross brings life, but we have to understand that the cross of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of human civilization, and that everything according to the scripture is pointing to the cross. In the Old Testament, it's pointing to the cross, and the New Testament, it is pointing back. And it is in that cross that you and I find life in Jesus.
1: And why do you think God chose, Jason, the cross to dynamically change the relationship between him and us? Because there had to be a punishment for sin. There had to be a
0: payment for that penalty and punishment of sin. And so the cross was the means that God chose. It's humiliating. It was suffering. It was death. And all of that was accomplished at the cross of Calvary. But again, if Jesus Christ had only been crucified— buried in a tomb, and had never risen again, then we're still dead in our sins, but He rose again so that we can have life. The cross, the reason why cross brings us life is because it also symbolizes death. It's a death to that old man. It's a death to that old mind. It's the death of that sin nature. We are saying no to it. It's being put away. The penalty's been paid for, and now we have a new life and a new name and a new nature in Jesus Christ.
1: I like the way the cross also symbolizes that restoration of the vertical relationship with God and then the horizontal relationship. We are now able to have right relationships with each other because of what Christ did, forgiving one another. Sometimes pretty hurtful and horrible things in each other's lives. So it's good to know that we can have restored relationships.
0: Yes, the cross brings restoration in every area, including relationships with mankind. A matter of fact, that's why we have peace. We find peace through the cross as well because now we have peace with God. And we can have peace with our fellow human beings. And again, all that comes through the cross.
1: You talk about how many believers are still under this guilt and condemnation of the Old Covenant. I want you to describe the difference between what condemnation is and what conviction is. Condemnation
0: is something that is laden with guilt. When a person is under condemnation, it is because they feel guilty for something. And conviction is different. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit moves upon the heart of a believer and points out error in their life or in their thinking or in their actions. And when that person repents of that and goes about restoration to make it right, then that sense of guilt leaves. But when a person is under condemnation, It's guilt upon guilt upon guilt and upon guilt. So we have a lot of people today in the church world who are under condemnation. And the reason why they're under condemnation is because they have never really stepped into the new covenant and understood the new life that they're given in Jesus Christ. So they're still carrying around guilt. They're going to church. They're part of the organized religion. They're part of organized church. But they have never really stepped into the new covenant of Jesus Christ and have realized that guilt can be removed off of them and they can have joy and
1: peace. And there is no condemnation, according to Scripture, for those who are in Christ. That's it. That's what Apostle Paul said in Romans. Absolutely. A George Barna study found that while many young people in America claim to be Christians, they also believe that Christianity is not the only way to heaven. The study showed that the same young people believe Christ to be the Son of God. However, they also believe that Christ did not live a sinless life here on earth. Why the difference from what the Bible clearly indicates about these essential truths of Scripture and the way these young people, according to the study, have interpreted it? Well, this is
0: going to be uh, (laughs) maybe a harsh answer for those of us that are called to preach, but I think it's true. Uh, The church has failed to make disciples. We're good at evangelizing. We're good at meeting the felt needs of people. We're good at filling up our church pews and our church chairs, but we fail to make disciples. We have to clearly present that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. and No man come to the Father but by me. The writer of Acts, Luke, he says that there's no other name given under heaven whereby men might be saved than Jesus Christ. That is the only way to heaven. So we have to make disciples. And what is happening is that the church world is majoring right now on felt needs, and we should. We need to minister to the sick. We need to feed the hungry. We need to clothe the naked. We're commanded to do those things in Scripture. But if that is our primary focus without clearly presenting the gospel, we're doing a disservice because now we have people growing up in our churches who really don't understand the gospel, nor do they understand what it means to be a disciple. And so they are turning to the world view and the worldly things to satisfy their intellectual curiosity. I'm to you this way. Preachers, quit watering down the message and preach the word of God, and you'll see results in your church.
1: This might be a hard question for you, Jason. Is there any specific part of All Things New that stands out to you than any other of the book It maybe speaks to you more personally? What's interesting to me is when I had
0: the insight that God has been in the process From the beginning of restoring all things. To me, that's phenomenal. In our world today, we're conditioned to have everything overnight, fast-paced. But that's not the way that it is. God is in the process of working all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And his plan. In Adam, paradise was lost. But in Christ, paradise is regained. And it is a process. And so I have to now look at the world And realize that although it may be imperfect and it's laden with sin and hurt and wounds, there's still hope and there's still victory that lies ahead because God's plan will come to pass even though it's a process of time.
1: If a reader was to take away one sentence that best describes your book, what would that sentence be? We have the opportunity to experience
0: newness in every area of life in a relationship with Jesus Christ
1: can't help but think, Jason, there's some people listening right now that feels like there's no hope of newness in their life because everything just seems to be unraveling, seems to be crumbling in their life. Even the thought of things becoming new in their life seems not even a reality or possibility. Well, I would say to
0: you that there is always hope. As long as there is breath in your body, there is hope for God to do a miracle. We believe that. Scripture clearly teaches that. And you may be in a point in your life right now where it seems like everything is falling apart, everything is unraveling. I want you to know that God is in control. And whenever you cry out to God, He promises to answer. And He will make all things new. If it's sin that you're struggling with, let me remind you that when you repent of that sin, you turn from your wicked ways. The Scripture tells us that He removes that sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And what that means is that it will never meet again. As long as you're going west, you're always going west. As long as you go east, you always go east. They will never meet. And so that is removed from us, and you have an opportunity to start over. You can become new in Jesus Christ.
1: It's my understanding that you wrote this book, All Things New, Jason, based on a sermon series that you preached at Collierville? That is correct, yes. Read it through my devotions one morning
0: and came across the Scripture in Revelation where it said, Behold, he who sits on the throne, said he makes all things new. And I just sat back, and it just literally began to unroll into my spirit all of the things that God has done, is doing, and will do, and making people new through Jesus Christ. And I began to preach that, and then it turned into a book.
1: Where can we find the book?
0: Uh, You can go to my website, the church website. You can go to com. That's ColliervilleAG.com. And we'll have a link there on the website that give you some information about the book.
1: It is a wonderful book, All Things New, by Pastor Jason Murphy, our guest today on Mid-South Viewpoint. Jason, again, is a senior pastor at Cogerville Assembly of God. Jason, where is the church located in Collierville? 730 South
0: by Helya Road. So that's just south of 385, for those of you familiar with that area. If you're
1: going 385, you'll exit to the right and south about a half a mile. Can't miss it. If somebody wanted to call you and ask a question or learn more about the ministry or maybe something about this book, how could they do that? You can call the church. That number is 901-853-9952. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Again, All Things New, the book by Jason Murphy. I hope that you will find out more about the book, how you can get a copy, friends, by going to the website at the church and that web address one more time, Jason. It's com. Today's Mid-South Viewpoint was pulled from our Radio Archive Vault and originally aired back in 2013. Be sure and listen to previous shows of Mid-South Viewpoint at BotRadioNetwork.com or download from one of your favorite podcast apps.